on Sagittarian Matters, talking about Togo, t-shirts, feminism, capitalism, karaoke, and more. With my guest, Kathleen Hanna. Stay tuned. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Kathleen Hanna is a musician, activist, and artist, best known for her work with the groundbreaking feminist punk band Bikini Kill and her multimedia group, La Tigra. Kathleen's newest project is T-Shirts for Togo, a fundraising effort with the nonprofit Peace Sisters to send girls to school in Togo, West Africa. I sat down with Kathleen in our Highland Park guest studio to drink coffee, talk about Togo, play fetch with Ponyo, and more. Please enjoy my talk with Kathleen Hanna. Welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Well, as a Scorpio, um, I'm just here, you know, talking to a Sagittarian in a calm, cool manner to not upset you. <laughs> Thank you very much. Are we an upsettable species? <laughs> no, my mom's a Sagittarian and she's actually, I feel like Sagittarians have really good senses of humor. So I think we do. I just found out that I have Venus and Scorpio. I found this out yesterday. I didn't think I had any Scorpio in my chart and then I was feeling... I was I was feeling the new, the new stretches of my uh, astrology. By reading I've got some Sagittarian, a little bit of Leo, but it's almost all Scorpio. Oh, how does it feel to be a Scorpio? It's your season. It's pretty heavy, I have to say, to be like a teenager, and ter- I'm turning fifty, but I'm still a teenager as a Scorpio forever. Is that their thing? Kind of, and it's like you know, being a permanent hothead. I'm really trying to learn to chill mm-hmm. this year. That's my uh, mantra, learning to chill. Oh, I would like to learn that someday. It's not currently in my... I'm like, oh, learning to chill. I'll put it on like a future to-do list. Yeah. Producer Ponyo is here. She does have a tiny Kong that she was trying to spit in your lap, and now she's looking for other toys that potentially you could play with. Um, but we're here to talk about your new project yeah. that you're helping with called Tease for Togo. Yeah. Can you tell us what that is? So Tees for Togo is a t-shirt business that I started and each t-shirt is $40 and each shirt sends a girl to school in West Africa, in Togo, West Africa. 100% of the profits go for tuition, books. This year, um, as a result of the business and us making a bunch of money at the launch party and we started to sell a bunch of shirts on the website and hopefully the holidays, everybody buy your Tees for Togo shirt. We have like... Who do we have? We have Jill Soloway, who I think was on the show. Yes. Um, we really need to do it, Allie. We've got... Oh, yeah. Sure. Okay. We have Carrie Brownstein, who was mm-hmm. on the show. Um, uh, JD. JD. Frequent contributor to the show. Yeah. Uh, who else? Kim, the Kim Gordon shirt is amazingly hot. Everyone's buying the Carrie Brownstein, I have to say. Mm-hmm. And the Kim Gordon. And Kim Gordon made the Carrie Brownstein one, so it's like double Kim. Yeah. Yeah. Um, who else do we have? Justin Vivian Bond. Justin Vivian Bond. Patton Oswald. Me. W. Kamal Bell. Um, comedian Hari Kondabolu, who's amazing. Um, 
lots of other people, but it's teasefortogo.com and you can just like check it out. And it's a four, number four, tease four. T-E-E-S, four togo. <laughs> people can find the link on our Instagram page in the podcast in the show notes. Yeah. We'll put that stuff. How did you get the idea to do a fundraiser in the form of t-shirts for this? How did you find out about the nonprofit? Well, I met Tina Kempor, who's the president of Peace Sisters, uh, which is, they're the group that actually sends the girls to school and takes the money there and deals with all of the um, business work. And uh, I met Tina through my landlady. Oh. Uh, recently moved to California, and uh, my landlady is awesome. She laughs that I call her my landlady because it's a weird thing to it's be It like, sounds like a Mrs. Roper thing. Yeah, or like, or like my old lady or mm-hmm. something like that. Um, but anyways... She introduced me to Tina, and then I went to a fundraising thing at a little store in Pasadena, and uh, Tina grew up in Togo, and her family, her remaining family is still there, and she was also an educator. She was a teacher, and she saw that there was this huge gap. At fifth grade, the state stops paying for school, and so in fifth grade, all the girls were dropping out. Mm -hmm. And when she moved to Pasadena and became a nurse, she kept thinking about all the girls whose dreams were kind of put to the wayside because they were staying at home doing housework, taking care of younger children, um, getting married, having kids young. And she was like, I just don't want these girls to have to rely on men their whole lives. I want them to have independent lives like I've been able to have because she's been very successful um, in coming here, getting her nurse's license. And so for 15 years, she just took money from her own nursing salary and sent it back. And was first year sent two girls through school, second year sent like five girls through school. And over the past 15 years, she's now she's sending 130 girls through school a year. And um, she turned it into a nonprofit like a year and a half ago, um, 2016. And since then now there's 300 girls in school mm-hmm. um sending the first young woman to college this year and hopefully um seven or eight girls to college next year mm-hmm. um depending on how many shirts i can get people to buy how many shirts do you want people to buy a lot a i lot. want people to buy a lot of shirts because it's not just getting the tuition and stuff together it's also that there's going to be a college program coming up and and we're starting to structure that mm-hmm. and it costs a lot to you know do a lot of the paperwork involved. A lot of girls don't have IDs and just to get the ID is a really, um, heavy, hard thing to do there. And so we're looking at like creating ways to, um, make that more accessible because it, it, it can cost more than a year of tuition just to get your birth certificate. So -hmm. you can go to college and they can't go to college without that. And if you're born at home, a lot of people don't have birth certificates. So, Um, you know, there's just all these things that's probably boring to everybody else, but um, I've been going to a lot of board meetings because I am the ambassador of Peace Sisters. I've been named the ambassador. Wonderful. And um, it's great because, like, I've just been sitting in. I, I got involved. I met Tina. I thought the program sounded great. And so I did a birthday fundraiser last year. My birthday is actually coming up in six days right now. Oh, my God. Um, Happy birthday, Scorpio. Thanks. And I... I just asked people, hey, instead of, you know, well wishes, why don't you send a girl to school for $40? And we raised uh, like six, seven, eight thousand dollars $8,000. And um, then I started throwing parties at my house, mm-hmm. like kind of fundraiser parties or just like informational parties to like tell people, hey, this is um, 
a woman in our community who's been doing this amazing thing on her own. Let's get involved. Yeah. And um, I had already started working on a t-shirt of myself because I'd seen people wearing t-shirts of me and I was like, I'm not making any money off that. And like, I should do one and, you know, give it to a nonprofit that I care about. And then I started working with Peace Sisters and I was like, I'll expand this. And then I, I just realized this is the perfect kind of nonprofit that I lucked into. Yeah. It's such a, it's such a great um, demonstration of how one person can make such a difference because Tina's just one person from this place who came here and started spreading the word. And now, you know, with your help and with the nonprofit, she sent so many girls to school and made a difference in all of their lives. Yeah. And the amazing thing for me is that she has her shit together. She's already done this. You know what I mean? Like she's already been doing this for 15 years. So and when I go to board meetings, I see just how totally together they are. Like they had a solar light program where they got um, 50 solar lights from one place and then 50 solar lights from another place because the girls, a lot of them don't have electricity. They can't study at night. So it's like once the sun goes down, it's over. And they got these solar lights and they were so specific about how they spend their money Mm -hmm. that they bought 50 of two different kinds. And then they gave them each to 50 girls and they had them switch so that they could give a report back oh. and say, here's the one that we liked. And they picked the, the one that actually illuminated an entire room. Mm-hmm. Like instead of it being, you know, there's like little like, what do they call them? Like gooseneck. It's a little tiny mm-hmm. gooseneck solar light. And it's just for one person to read. And then there's another one that's more like a light bulb. Mm-hmm. And it lights up a whole room so that everybody can be you know, doing cooking later at night, reading later at night, cleaning up later at night. And that actually impacts the whole family. And I think it's a great kind of illustration of how together they are, Mm -hmm. that they're getting input from the girls and young women who, who were working for Mm -hmm. and, and saying, well, what do you want? What will help you instead of people who don't live there coming in and being like, here's what you need or here's what, you know? And the fact that Tina grew up there and stuff, she knows what's going on and she goes back every year. And and one of the, um, members of the Peace Sisters team goes back with her. I'm going back. I'm going next year. Although it's really hard because I want to go I want to go. Now. <laughs> I want to yeah. go now, but um, I have a lot of stuff going on, so I can't go right now. Yeah, but then you can go and be like, "We just sold so many T-shirts." But I, I like that kind of idea of like it's it's kind of like I don't know I I don't know if it's like decolonizing activism or what, but I know like I've gone into a different community before to be helpful, and then I got there and realized that they didn't want help in the way that I had in my head planned to help them, and so getting to just sit down and listen and be like, okay. How can, if I actually want to be of service to you, how can I do that? That in a way that's actually helpful to you and not just me being like, here's what I think you want. Um, I think that's helpful to take into any kind of, yeah, any kind of community service or activist practice. That's why I feel so lucky to be a part of Tina's organization because she runs it, she knows what's going on, and I just get to be fun and creative and throw parties and, you know, do this t-shirt thing. It's been a lot of work, but mm-hmm. it's really joyful to like get people involved and to, you know, everybody I asked, I would just be like, dear Pat Oswald on Twitter, can I do a shirt of you? And he's like, yeah. Yeah. You know, like everybody's like, this is awesome. And like Kristen Shaw, who I'm a really big fan of her comedy and her acting. And, um, you know, she wrote to me after the t-shirts launched and was like, thank you for making it so easy 
for people to give and such a cool thing where like you actually get something, you know, it's, I mean, in a way it's like, it's like a Kickstarter without a Kickstarter because it's like you actually get your prize for real. You're actually, it's going to show up. Yeah. Because you're buying something, yeah, um, and you're you're getting like a cool product. I've like made made sure like to cross my t's and dot my eyes, and every single shirt, people, the people who are on them have said yes, I want to do this, and the artists have donated their time. And when I was researching like starting a t-shirt business, I found so many t-shirt businesses where it's like they'll just put anybody's face on a shirt and not ask that person, and. I just was like, I don't want to do that. And I think it's really important, like, you know, as people who dislike capitalism, that if we're going to start businesses, we start them in ethical manners. Yeah. You know, like, and we don't use sweatshops. And, you know, I just feel like you can't really just opt out of capitalism. So we have to start building models of how we can work within it in an ethical framework to hopefully build something different in the future. But if we don't get our feet wet with it, how are we going to build the future if yeah. we're just like capitalism sucks and I'm not going to participate, which no one can actually afford to do. I yeah. mean, no one I've ever met can just do that, but you know. Today's episode is brought to you by Lagusta's Luscious Chocolates, organic, fair trade, always vegan caramels, bonbons, bars, and more made for you in New Paltz, New York with passion and politics. You can use the offer code SAGITTARIAN for 10% off your order at LaGustasLuscious.com. And hey, if you are feeling the fall spirit, try their Caramel and Autumn Leaves box filled with apple caramels, maple pecan caramels, and delicious chocolate-painted leaves with vegan maple cream. Follow them on Instagram at LaGustasLuscious for secret sales and behind-the-scenes candy making. I'm going to spell it for you. L A G. U-S-T-A-S, Luscious. Now, I need to have some real talk with you and tell you that I have been a longtime fan of this food, and when I lived in the middle of nowhere, I signed myself up to get Lagusta's chocolates once a month for the year I was away from home, and it made my month. It made my life. It was the maybe one of the nicest things I've ever done for myself. So anyway, if you want to try these chocolates because they are delicious and do a nice thing for yourself... You get 10% off your order at lagustasluscious.com with the offer code Sagittarian. I saw you speak in Portland a few years ago, three years ago, four years ago, three years, something around then. But there was something you said that I wrote in my notes. I take illustrated notes of every talk I go to. If I ever find it, I could send you a, a picture of the drawing of it. But you said... Feminist art shouldn't be free because it's not free to make, which I thought was really valuable. And truly, I mean, I do want to say people like stood in line to raise their hand and ask you the question and be like, tickets were expensive. And and you said, and I'm paraphrasing and feel free to jump in at any point and be like, yeah, but you were basically like, well, yeah, I don't know if you want me to say that I'm not worth it or that it's not worth it, but that's just how much it costs. And you just got to choose. And then other people stood up and were like, yeah, I just like babysat so I could afford this ticket or I just did this or that to afford this ticket in my head I'm like these people pay so much money to things like gasoline cigarettes alcohol stuff that totally sucks and they never question it and then when an artist asks for their price to like leave their home fly across the country to spend time in your city and see you then people start bellyaching about that 
But then I just, I was like, ah, I just, I got, I get riled about art versus capitalism and people thinking that artists are having so much fun that they shouldn't even charge for their time. Well, if that's the way the world wants it, then we're going to have a bunch of rich, white, straight males who are making all the art. You know what I mean? It's like, or people, anybody with a trust fund. And I mean, I saw that in the punk scene early on where it was like, you know, we moved to DC in Bikini Kill and everything was a benefit show there. Mm -hmm. And I was like taking off work to play a benefit show and they're not even giving me a guest list. And I was like, how am I supposed to, how is any band supposed to survive here unless it's like a hobby? And like with Bikini Kill, it couldn't be a hobby. It took all of our time and energy and it, it's you're supposed to be independent be managing yourself booking your own shows doing your own you know we didn't really do press but press with like doing fanzines answering mail writing the songs recording the albums all this stuff playing five dollar shows and then it's like oh now you actually have to play a bunch of free shows and not get paid and I was like we can't really we can't self we can't sustain ourselves in DC because Mm -hmm. all the shows are benefits and that's the expectation and I was just like if this keeps up the only bands that are going to get supported are people who can afford to just work for free. Yeah. And that's what keeps things the same. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I I think that I got a really strong kind of class versus art lesson. The first time I went on Sister Spit, it was the, the tour was managed by somebody that had created the Sex Workers Art Show Tour. And so she was used to working with sex workers. So she was like, I'm not going to take these people out of their homes and away from their jobs for a month at a time and not pay them. So she kind of taught us this touring model to get as much money as we could by doing colleges and ticketed shows and stuff that was so different from like the anarchist punk scene I came from, which was helmed by like straight white guys with trust funds who were like, everything should be free. We're sleeping on a couch. But I was like, oh yeah, you can't, if you only let the people come on tour who can afford to leave their homes for nothing, then you're just going to get one viewpoint across the country. And so. Well, I used to start seeing that DIY was D-I-E. <laughs> Die. <laughs> they do it for everyone else. Yeah, you know, is- it's like, it's like, I guess that's D-I-E-E. But um, I feel like there's definitely a whole idea of that certain people should be in service, whether it's people of color or women and the whole, you know, female volunteerism model and how it's like, you're supposed to take tickets for the show, pat people down, play the show, be your own promoter. Like, yeah, it's just, um, I, I think that doing it yourself is a, is a great idea in terms of empowerment when it's empowering, but I think being able to allocate, being able to get people to help you who love doing a part of maybe your job that you don't love doing, Mm -hmm. um, is a way that we can keep what we do sustainable. Like, how are you going to keep, you know, being a writer if you're self-publishing every single thing and you're working, you know, two jobs to do that? Yeah. I just, I don't know. Sorry. Well, so, well, it kind of, it brings up, you know, like in the nineties or whenever there was this question about like selling out, like who's going to sell out? And it, it is, it's kind of back to the idea of like who can afford not to sell out? Because some people, it's just like, well, you just... And also for me, as someone who grew up in Kansas, in the suburbs of Kansas, pre-internet, or, you know, when the internet was like an ancient, you know, like like, like some hamsters in a wheel would grind out a website that just had words on it and there was no pictures. People rising to the level where they were on television was so valuable for me because then I could use it as a gateway to learn about punk or feminism or zines or politics. Like, I only got politicized through zines. And I only found zines through music culture. 
speaking of <laughs> something to say. Well, one one thing that happened that was kind of big for me was like, you know, Bikini Kill, a lot of times our shows were pretty violent and stuff. And like, we wouldn't have security and we didn't have management. And um, so that level of violence and like hatred that was, um, and also there was tons of love and support and excitement, but um, it got very stressful and, and very tiring. And then when I left that band and I joined Lee Tigra, I was like, okay, how can I, how can I change things to <laughs> the dog just fell off the couch? Um, how can I change the way that I'm doing things to make this more sustainable? So I don't want to just like give up. Cause I was getting to the point of like, I can't do this anymore. Yeah. And I realized that having tickets that were $12 instead of five meant that guys who wanted to just throw a beer at my head weren't showing up because it was $12 and that's like a real commitment. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so actually raising the door price helped me in terms of safety, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and it also, it was like the moment to say, Hey, I'm worth it. Like we're worth this. And like, you know, we were putting on a multimedia show. We had to have a sound person because we were basically doing glory glorified karaoke. And it's like, I remember the first time we, we played at the show in Arizona and it was uh, at the Congress Hotel and it was in a parking lot. So it was outdoors, but they had to put a fence up around it so people could still actually stand around and like watch. Yeah. Um, but it was weird because we were playing inside a chain link fence in Arizona, um, which is a state that seems to love chain link fences. Yeah, they can't get enough of it. Yeah. And uh, there was a, a woman who, and I'll just say it, Krusty Punk, Go ahead. came up. <laughs> like kind of behind the stage and was like, you know, yelling about how the tickets were $12 or like whatever. And that was the first time I ever said feminist art isn't free. Mm-hmm. And I just like stopped the show and I just, that's all I said. And it was like dead silent. And I was like, you know what? And I looked at her and I was like, feminist art isn't free. And I, and then we just moved on. Cause I was like, I'm not, I'm not explaining it. I'm not going to, go into a thing it's like go to a you know maroon five show and tell them that they're supposed to be playing for free and ask them what it feels like to be men who are in a band ask them what it feels like to be rich ask them what you know what i mean it's like it's like why are you asking me like i don't know i just think that we do need to create some kind of sustainable models as artists for being able to live in the world um and i'm lucky because you know i do have money because i married somebody who's wealthy and i can make those decisions not to participate in certain ways that I don't need to. When I'm working with other people, I'm not the only person to consider. Mm-hmm. And um, so I just try to make like ethical judgments. And I think that people do that. We need to not judge other people based on our own experiences. I mean, that's super obvious, like, especially in today's like political arena that we need to like, you know, really be super empathetic and just assume that everybody just got a cancer diagnosis basically like every day of our lives and and um just assume the best of of people who we care about i think it's so interesting about who people question who people feel comfortable questioning do you feel it does it seem like do people just think of you as super accessible because you're a woman or because you're a feminist or because you were speaking about true things and making yourself vulnerable in ways that maybe they weren't used to seeing with other artists or male artists? I mean, I think definitely I seemed really accessible before the internet, like more accessible than a lot of my peers. Um, just because like I wrote letters back to everybody and, you know, 
um, was very open to having conversations with people and dialoguing with people about stuff. But um, now that the internet is available, I mean, there's tons of people who feel way more accessible mm-hmm. than they than I think anybody expected. Mm-hmm. You know, like now it's kind of there's an expectation, especially from female artists, that it's like you not only make your music or make your art, but you also like knit mittens for your fans. And, but you sell them for $300 for yeah. your knit mittens. Yeah. And I remember when I first uh, started doing the Julie Ruin after a long hiatus of not working. And um, it was suggested to me that one way to make money would be to like knit things or make crafts and then like sell them to fans for like a lot of money. And I was just like, I'm not doing that. Like I was like, I'm not going to crochet or macrame some stuff for people. Like that's not my job. Like I make music and yeah, (laughs) you're not, it's like now it's like, you're supposed to be a mod, a fashion model. Who's like 12 years old and you're supposed to knit mittens. Well, that's a thing like with boundaries, like where, how much do you feel like you, Because I feel like as somebody, so my art's very personal and it's autobiographical. And so sometimes people are like, oh, I see that your boundaries are different than some other artists I find. So maybe you have no boundaries. So can I just know everything about your life or can I have access to every piece of information that's available? And so then I feel like the more that I've had that, the more private I've had to be Mm -hmm. or the more fiercely I've had to guard the things that are left that are mine that are not available for that. Um, but I, so I wonder, yeah, like with the crafting thing or like the like parts that are not your job, not your art, how have you created it so that your art career is sustainable for yourself? And so you feel like people aren't eating or chewing more than you have up for offer. I think at a certain point, like in Lee Tigre, I definitely started to be like, okay, I need some kind of distance. Like I can't be like doing rape crisis counseling after every show for like five different people. Um, even though it still happened during Lady Grey and during the Julie Ruin. Because that was part of the Bikini Kill thing was like you had a domestic violence kind of platform and thing you were talking about so people would feel free to come and have these conversations with you. Yeah, and I like worked with crisis funds and stuff like that. So um, it was part of my thing in, in my band previous to Bikini Kill, Viva Knievel, that was like we went on this two-month U.S. tour that was basically like the domestic violence rape tour, like – there would only be, you know, a couple women in the audience at the time because it was the late 80s, early 90s, and it was, like, it was 89. And it was, like, you know, the two women who came would inevitably come up and be, like, I've never heard a woman on stage talk about that. I've never told anybody this. You're the only one I can trust. And I started to feel like, oh, I'm taking the training that I got, you know, doing crisis phones and doing intakes and stuff um, out on the road. Mm-hmm. And and this is a way that I can and, and my main thing was to get women to find support in their local community and to find like, you know, here's a rape crisis line you can call. Here's a place that you can call locally um, and to just say, hey, it's bad enough. Like so many women I have met thousands of women over the years. And one of the most common things I've heard after hearing horrific story after horrific story of rape, domestic violence, incest. Oh, but my story is not bad enough to like waste someone's time. Like the, they feel like there's like some survivor out there whose experience is so much worse and they don't want to clog up the phone time at the crisis line. And, and I'm just like, how bad does it have to be? I mean, it's all bad. It's not like you can't really like 
put stuff on a continuum or on a point system of like whose rape stories worse or, you know, what have you. But like, that's been one of the main things is like, oh, I wouldn't call a place like that. And part of my mission in, in Bikini Kill was, and still is to be like, no, these are services that are there for you that are typically run by other women who've been through the same experiences, utilize those services. Like it is for you. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's yeah. like, I kind of wanted to make it cool to call a rape crisis line. <laughs> I just want to make it the hip thing to do. You're rebranding. Yeah, rape rebranding lines. rape crisis lines. But, um, but yeah, in Lady Tigra, you know, I definitely gave myself more distance from um, people who came to shows and stuff like that because I was like, I can't, I, I'm also going through my own stuff, my own life experiences that I have to deal with and um, family stuff and like what have you. And, um, I definitely, we finally had a website because it was the internet time and we're like, um, put a lot of information for survivors and for people who are just coming out, um, on our website. So we like collected resources and had that available so that we could point people to the website and be like, oh, we have a bunch of information about that there so that I didn't have to personally like counsel everybody yeah. or, you know, and I was still answering mail and emails and stuff like that, but I, I, I bit off only as much as I could chew and I've definitely um, found a way to negotiate things so that I have a private life because mm-hmm. that makes me healthier. And it, that's what sustained my career is when I realized, hey, I need a private life. Mm-hmm. Like I need to actually have, you know, pay attention to my loving, wonderful, supportive friends and, you know, people around me and be a part of a community and not just my bands my whole life, mm-hmm. you know, and having my band be my whole life wasn't healthy for me. And so in Lady Tigra, I started to get that balance better. And then, um, now I feel like, you know, I'm not doing music right at the moment, but I feel like with projects that I do work on, I have a healthy, you know, what I can take and what I can, or when I, I do lectures and stuff, mm-hmm. it's just, it's nice that I can do those few and far between. So I can visit with people after the shows and talk to them and it's not too much because I'm not doing it every day. Yeah, I feel like it's so important for artists to... I mean, there's a thing I heard in therapy before which somebody said, um, give from your excess, not your essence. And I feel like that's a sustainable model. It's like if you're going from a dry well and you're not giving yourself time to refuel, then it's not... You're just going to burn out and then that's not yeah. helpful. Yeah. I mean, again, that's something I learned from when I worked at a domestic violence shelter. Like all we talked about was burnout because the burnout level of doing direct services is intensely high. And... uh so I just kept moving around mm-hmm. in that world. I was like, okay, I'm going to do intakes at the shelter. I'm going to do crisis lines. I started a teenage sexual um, assault survivors group with another woman. And, you know, then I was like, oh, I'm going to invite people on stage. Like I'm going to be on stage and tell teenagers about the program. And I was just 20. So I was, you yeah. know, not much farther away from being in high school myself. But then I was like, I can't. I can't do this direct service work anymore. So I started talking at high schools mm-hmm. and then I was in a band yeah. and then I'm, you know what I mean? And then it was like, I start, I took it to that level and it was like, I found that the way that I can sustain that kind of work is through music because it's something that I love doing. Mm-hmm. And I feel like the whole idea of you're either a total hedonist who like, I'm just going to write songs about all the girls who pissed me off and how injured I am as a man or as a white person or like whatever. Yeah. I'm just going to, do that and you know try to get people to want to make out with me and think I'm cute 
versus I'm going to, you know, be a sacrificial lamb and everybody can come to free for my shows and I'll work three jobs to make that happen. And I won't give myself any energy or any time. It's like, you can have it so that you're not like you said, giving from your essence, you're giving from your access. It's like, you can have it so that if you mix something, I've said this a million times, I feel really like Tony Robbins or something, but it's like, if you, for me, the thing that really worked was, was going through the process of being like, okay, I can't do this kind of direct services. So now I'm going to be a legal advocate in the court system for a while. And I tried that. And like, I went through all these different things and I was like, oh, public speaking, this is actually working for me a little bit better. And then, you know, basically turning into like writing lyrics and, Mm -hmm. and all that kind of stuff. But, um, the way I figured it out was if I can mix this kind of work with something that I just could do forever and ever and ever, Mm -hmm. you know, like, I love making music and I love being on stage and getting attention and hopefully making people laugh a little bit. It just makes me really happy. And so I'm not, I'm gaining from it. I'm not losing from it. Like it's actually sustaining me and healing me and I earn a living from it. Yeah. You know, so it's like, and there's no shame in that game. It's like, you don't have to be a martyr in order to be a part of something that is progressive and interesting. If you have an advice question for Sagittarian Matters, call or text our advice hotline, 971-361-9998. Leave a message. We might answer your question on the air, and we promise not to answer the phone. That is a Sagittarian promise that you can take all the way to the bank. Do you have um, like a mission statement or something that you go back to when you're like, okay, I'm doing all these projects, but the thing they have in common is... Blank. You mean my brand? Because my okay. brand right now. What's your brand right now? Well, because I, yeah, what's your brand versus your mission statement? Or are they the same thing? I don't know. <sighs> no, I just, I found out I had a brand when Isn't I moved to New York and I was like, what? And it's like, I'm off brand. I'm on brand. I don't know. I just think it's the whole thing of like, you better brand yourself before somebody brands you. And it's like, it, it sounds like they're coming at you with a cattle prod. It's so creepy. That is the capitalist cattle prod. It is. Moving it's to Silver Lake and seeing people take so many selfies in front of murals at, I mean, this is, here's a little capitalism for you. Is like all over Silver Lake, every business has some kind of muralized wall with their logo on it. And so then people will take a photo of themselves in front of the wall and put it on their Instagram. And that's like their art. But it's just them advertising for the place they just gave money for, but they're advertising it for free because they like the color of the wall. And being there as an actual artist sometimes – also, then those people stand in my way when I'm in line for something. I can't, I'm just like, <laughs> oh, like if I – it depends like my level of PMS that day. But that that level of branding is – it does drive me up the wall. Well, no, I just think like – I, don't know, I, it's, I guess so there's the through line through all of your work just like social justice and mixing art and activism. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I kind of like to think feminist, like pirate or something, mm-hmm. or like <laughs> adventurer. Mm-hmm. Like, I really like the idea of that, you know, throughout my career, which, you know, I didn't call it a career yeah. forever because I was like, ooh, shame, shame, you know, or yeah. like call myself an artist, like God forbid, you know, with a capital A. And then I'm like the singular narrator who thinks that my experience stands for all. And then blah, blah, blah. like yeah. you can go down this whole rabbit hole with it where it's like, wow, isn't it weird that I just found my voice and I'm already giving it up, you know, or like I just found my voice and 
I'm saying, hey, I'm not speaking for all people. It's like, of course I'm not speaking for all people. Listen to my voice. I do not sound like every other person, although I do probably sound like 300 other people that you know. <laughs> but, um, but like, I just think it's important to be able to take credit for what you do and be proud of what you do in the world. And I think there's a lot of 90s damage that I retained that's just really like, you know, don't step up, don't take credit, don't, you know, I was always like, ah, oh, you know, I didn't, I didn't do this all myself. And it's true. I didn't. And I'll always stand by that. And it bums me out that I was pulled out as like the, you know, poster person for like Riot Girl and for that whole thing. Like, cause it really was a large community of people, um, that, that was bringing feminism and queer politics to the fore in the punk scene. And I definitely was not the most important or the one who worked the hardest or, or anything. But at the same time, like, I think I'm an awesome performer and I think I deserve credit for like, you know, being good at what I do and loving what I do and like trying to be as inclusive as I can in, in what I do and being ethical in my business decisions and trying new things like trying working with a major label. Mm-hmm. You know, I just, I don't want to put out the message that it's like, Oh, all indies are great and all majors suck. I mean, I've been ripped off by indies and majors. So everybody's, yeah, you know, every situation's different. And like, I think it's really important that, um, marginalized artists like have other artists to look to who try new things and, and they don't die from it. You know what I mean? Like in Lady Tigra, we were really like, part of the thing was like, let's try this and just show like, it felt like, wow, we're really jumping off a mountain, you know, like we're going to get in big trouble because we signed to a major label for one record. And I was like, I can't play the same club. I had been playing the same club for 15 years. I was playing at the same club that became, that actually Viva Knievel, my very first band when I was 19 years old played at, and I was like 36. Yeah. So same sound guy, same place, same owner, same. Yeah. The guy offered to pay us in weed as he had every single time I'd ever played there before. There was a potluck meal for us before the thing, like, you know, the whole thing. And I was just like, I can't play on the stage again. Like I've loved it, but I was like, I just need to play different rooms or I'm going to really lose it. And for me to sustain it, I had to see what that other thing was. Yeah. And you know, tour bus and slightly bigger clubs. It was really interesting, but it turned out not to be for me. Mm-hmm. I missed touring in a van with my small skeleton crew. I missed, you know, setting up our own shows and being our own managers. Like mm-hmm. I missed that. And, um, it turned out that like, I, I'm not somebody who really wants to work with major corporations and I can afford not to, which is nice, which is lucky. And, um, a privilege and but I'm not going to fault anybody else who does and yeah. I don't want to I just don't want to be a purist about anything because I think that that's really scary I think we should be able to try things and make mistakes and I think that anybody who puts their head out and says hey you know what I do is political everything we all do is political but who admits it and yeah. says like I'm a feminist and I'm pro-trans rights and I'm you know what I mean like and I hate all the racism in this country you yeah. know and like blah, 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 all of a sudden you're held up to this impossible standard of like, well, I saw you wearing leather shoes or blah, 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 blah. And yeah. it's like anything to, to take you down. And it's like, 
that's fine. But like people don't hold everybody to those standards. They just hold people <clears throat> who stand up and say, I'm against the status quo. And then everything becomes about proving that you're a hypocrite. And I am a hypocrite because I change and I grow. I learn new information and then I become a different person. Mm-hmm. And so I'm proudly a hypocrite. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I just, I'm just like, I'm just a person. I was like, I don't know. Like I, this, the people criticizing me, I'm never, I'm never like, oh, they're doing significantly better than me. Like the, you know, like the people that are like sitting in their house being like, well, you know, this is okay, but this isn't okay. I'm just like, well, are you doing something better? I mean, I do, it makes me feel like a 13 year old, but I do think about the minor threat song that has the lyric that's like, you say that I make no difference, but at least I'm fucking trying. I just, I remember being what a- you did. Yes. I remember being a teenager, being the only person holding together Food Not Bombs in Kansas City for like several years, just like my car always selling like old bagels, you know, just like driving around, picking up the food from all the places, rotting bagels in my car, setting up, sitting on like a cold street corner on a Sunday afternoon, trying to feed people. And then other people who weren't doing anything, criticizing it, being like, you're just trying to assuage your, you know, white middle class guilt or whatever, or like people be like, it's not perfect, so I'm not going to, but then they're not doing anything. I just remember trying so hard to do something so good and having people try to rip it down. I was like, what are you fucking doing besides being a critic? Yeah. But that's where you have to like really separate the wheat from the chaff. Like, you know, you just have to be like, okay, this is actually productive dialogue. These people are, or this person is calling me out on something and like, is this real? Yeah, it is real. I did make a mistake. I am going to like, you know, step up and like learn more and like change. And then there's sometimes where you're just like, oh, armchair, you know, yeah. critic where it's like, you know, it's really easy from the comfort of your parents' basement or whatever to criticize like a feminist band who's like barely scraping two nickels together. Like, um, and I've actually had people come up to me, like a, a girl is really funny, uh, came up to me and saw Lee Tigre show and afterwards um, was like, hey, I just want to apologize to you. And I'm like, what? I don't even know what you're talking about. And she's like, when I was 16, I wrote you a letter about what a sellout you were because you played, we opened for the Go-Go's at the Warfield and it was like a $20 <laughs> like yeah. ticket price or something. And she was like, you're a sellout and you know, like you're dead to me and like this whole thing. And I didn't even remember her letter. Yeah. Um, but I was like, oh, that's really sweet of you to apologize. I was like, I really, and she's like, and now I'm, you know, I'm a social worker and I'm doing this in my life and I'm doing all this and I realize how hard things are. And I'm like, I can't believe that, you know, 16 year old me living off my parents felt that I had the right to criticize you. And, you know, now she's a full grown feminist out in the world doing her thing. And, um, and I was like, it was just, it felt really great that she took the time to come up and say that to me, because that's one of the things that I think a lot of people think who are doing work in the world and constantly getting torn down is like, wow, does anybody, you know, like sometimes you think, you know, I really need to pay attention to the the people who are saying that um, they're getting something out of what I'm doing. Because I, I think that's another thing that if you come from an abusive background or like what have you, um, you can tend to just listen to the hate and take it in. And mm-hmm. it's like, why is it that I'll get like a hundred really positive comments of like, you know, you helped me out in high school or like, you know, whatever. And the one person who's like, you know, you're a sellout or you're not really punk or like whatever sticks in my head, but it doesn't anymore because I'm just like, 
you know, unless it's like some real criticism, which is a gift, then I just am like, I don't care. Like, I don't know you, you know what I mean? It's like, and by the same token, it's like, I do, I do take it in when people say, you know, you helped me throughout my adolescence or like your music helped me through my adolescence or whatever. But at the same time, I take it all with a, a grain of salt. You know what I mean? Whether yeah. it's like super positive or super negative. It's like sort of the the in-between real life things that happen that I really, really take notice of. Yeah. I think RuPaul does have something that he says that's basically like that. He's like, I just, he's like, I don't take in the good, like the good reviews or the bad reviews because like neither, like they're both going to do something weird to my ego. Exactly. And so I try not to take in either of them. Um, but that, that idea of people being able to like apologize or make amends for something feels very mature. It feels like maturity. It feels like, you know, it, but on both ends, cause like you get to be like, okay, that person had a complicated life. Who knows what was going on for them when they wrote that letter, how old they were, what was going on behind the scenes, where they were coming from when they felt like they needed to like express that strong feeling to me. And then also for that person to like reflect and be like, oh my God, I'm so sorry I did that to another human being. Who maybe you get, you get, like, I feel like people get a little objectified as a public figure and people feel like they can just say whatever about you or do whatever and it's not going to affect you. But you personally, I mean, you didn't elect yourself like the official head of Riot Girl, but by other people selecting you as like the spokesperson, you feel like you got so much abuse just from, you know, from somebody who just from afar, I was like, that person's just getting all like everyone's anger about feminism or discomfort with everything. <laughs> everyone's like spitting it on this one human being who's just standing up speaking for the thing that a lot of us feel anyway. I'm yeah. Kidding. But I also got a name out of it. You know yeah. what I mean? Like I have some kind of name recognition so that I can do lectures at colleges. I can do, you know, um, a stage show I can do, you know, a karaoke night and raise money for peace sisters. And so I'm just trying to like use that recognition, like trying to look at the positive thing that came out of it. Like Mm -hmm. so many feminist artists, like nobody knows who they are and they're much better artists than I am. And it's like, I mean, not really because I'm great, but you know what I'm saying? It's like, there's people who are totally amazing who never get any recognition at all. And they work their butts off and they're, um, and they're inspiring everybody who comes in contact with them. So I just feel like to sit there and, and bellyache myself about, you know, taking crap from people. It's like, it's just a waste of time. You know what I mean? Like, I just feel like I have to, my whole thing has been like, I'm on a mission and I'm on a path and I'm not letting anybody take me off it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, yes, I will. I take, I want, I want criticism, but I don't want just people like spitting in my face and calling me names. You know what I mean? And like when that kind of thing happens, I protect myself. Yeah. I, I really actually don't shy away from the idea of the podcast being like a Tony Robbins podcast. I love Tony. I loved Tony Robbins. Did he die or something? No. But he, there was some video, he like, he, there was some horrible video of him talking to someone about the Me Too movement because he, you know, he's like so against people seeing themselves as victims. And so then the idea that women were speaking up, he was like, you're keeping yourself in a victim mode. And then some, there was just this video of him, like kind of bullying this woman at one of his seminars to be like, I know a very, a very famous rich man who won't even, 
hire attractive women anymore because he's just afraid. Oh, that's so sad. <laughs> we should start a benefit for that person. Maybe maybe my new feminist band can play. Her. We can do a benefit for Tony Robbins's friend who's a man who's oh. afraid to hire <laughs> women because he's probably emotionally damaged over that. He needs some free therapy. He needs some I know free he's therapy. wealthy, but we still as women owe it to him to like take care of his therapy bills. He can't even hire attractive life. women around the office. He can't even hug women at the office anymore. This whole like I'm rubber your glue thing that's happening right now is making me totally banana pants. Like, what do you mean? Just that that the right wing, aka white nationalists, are like right now calling everybody who's like a healer, a productive person, someone who's trying to like you know make the world a better place. We're victimizing Trump. We're victimizing, oh. you know, these men. Yeah. Like the Me Too movement. And and even like women are participating in it a lot of times. And I, I feel like it's because we need to joke about it to get through. But then the way that people are laughing about it isn't the way that we think that they're laughing about it. <laughs> they need to have some kind of club. Oh, yeah. That's called the Republican Party. Oh, yeah. There's a place for them to go. Yeah. Um, I... Why did I bring that up? Oh, because I, I feel very happy to make any part of the podcast an alternative to Tony Robbins, an alternative to Goop, because uh, I had to unsubscribe from the Tony Robbins podcast because I couldn't see. I used to like it because I'm kind of a Capricorn. I have a lot of Capricorn on my chart, and I love like business-minded anything. And then I was like, I just can't listen to his voice right now. It just isn't working for me after seeing this video. So do you have any advice for young artists or young feminists right now? If we were to kind of Tony Robbins this. I never watched Tony Robbins. I don't really know. He's like a self-help guru, right? Yeah, yeah. And he like gets up on stage and walks back and forth and says stuff like, you can do anything. You're amazing. Look in the mirror. Tell yourself that. Is that what he does? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. You have the gist. (laughs) Well, I'm not a very good Tony Robbins. I feel like everybody has to figure out what works for themselves the best. But, you know... I guess that's my advice is figure out what works for you yeah, and do it and mix, mix what you love doing with what you care about the most in the world. You know, I always say that when I give lectures, I'm like, Hey, tomorrow, why don't you start thinking about like, maybe you already know what it is, but like, what is the thing that when you ask yourself the question, like, what would I most like to change in the world or what? What do I care most about? What makes me angriest? What makes me saddest? What makes me happiest? Like, and find a way to take that thing that you care about so much and mix it with something that you love. Like, do you love gardening? How can you mix those two things? Like, you know, ending environmental racism. Yeah. And then you're like, I love gardening. How can I, you know, help the, in the environmental movement? How can I be a part of that? How can I use this skill set to be a part of that? I know I sound totally, that's totally Tony Robbins. That's very Tony Robbins. That's good. I know you were like. Super Tony Robbins-ish, even though I don't know really Tony Robbins. You were like, I don't think I can do this, but here it is. (laughs) Wait, the very, very. I wrote this in the shower. (laughs) You're like, this is a short TED Talk, but it's, it's good. I think. Why hasn't TED Talk asked me? Where's TED? Why hasn't TED emailed me and been like, Kathleen, we need you. Come down to TED headquarters. They can't even afford the bandwidth for how many people would access that video all at the same time and it would crash their site. So I seriously doubt it. (laughs) 
Today's episode is brought to you by Lagustus Luscious, Michelle Lemoyne, Anthony Pinto, Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Mary Pinson, and Christy Herod. If you would like to support Sagittarian Matters, including producer Chris Sutton, please send $5, $10, $500, that's your business, via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That's hornet like the insect, leg like its appendage at gmail. Thank you for your support, and we look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it too. Don't be scared, that's her voice. Um, okay, the very last thing I want to ask you, which we've brought up a few times, but in case people don't know, something that happens in LA a lot, or something that's happened a few times that I've gone to, which I really enjoy, are house parties to benefit something. Um, can you talk a little bit about how, okay, so if somebody's listening to this and they live in Montana, they live in wherever, and there's something they really believe in and they want to raise awareness about it, or they want to raise money about it, or it's for a candidate, they want people to support um how can they, what is a house party? And then how can they kind of, what's the idea behind it? Well, um, I actually totally did not know what I was doing in terms of like trying to have a party and raise money for people. So I'm, I'm kind of bad about it. And I actually watched a bunch of Ted talks on it. Oh, you did? Yeah, I did. And I did a bunch of internet research and, um, but I'm really bad at asking for money. So I'm actually trying to get a fundraising committee together for Peace Sisters so that other people can do that. Um, but I really do like throwing parties and I just had to push myself and be like, you know what? In the middle of the party, you stand up and you say, Mm -hmm. this is, you know, I want to introduce you guys to this thing that I'm working on or to this person who's doing this great thing in our community. Um, I found that the best way to actually fundraise is online, Mm. Um, but you can fundraise at a party. You can have like uh, donation things out. You can have something that you're selling. Mm-hmm. You know, like that actually works, worked really well for me with having the t-shirts um, and selling them at a party, mm-hmm. like having something that people can tangibly buy, like make a bunch of mugs for your organization, like make a bunch of like whatever and charge. Maybe you can do a sliding scale where it's like, if somebody wants to donate a thousand dollars, they can buy a mug for a thousand dollars and mm-hmm. tell people that. Yeah. Like when you get up and I never do this. So I'm, I'm telling this to myself at the same time to, to invite people over and tell them, cause there could be somebody there who does have a bunch of cash burning a hole in their pocket that you don't know or know somebody who does. And, and you say like, Hey, if you can give $1 for a mug, if you can give $2 for a mug, if you can give $10 for a mug, do so. If you can give $5,000 for a mug and help this organization, um, I think it's a it's a great way also for grass, grassroots organizing, you know, mm-hmm. to have a fun party and not have it be corporate. You do it yourself. You do it for a candidate you care about. You do it for whatever. And you bring people together. And even if people are like not into it, they just learn something new that's going on in their community. Mm-hmm. And hopefully they were inspired maybe to do something on their own. Even if they don't donate to your group in particular, you just gave that person the idea that they can throw a party at their house and have it mean something. Right now we're in the era where it's like, we can't really afford to just party for party's sake. Yeah. Got to fight for our right to fundraise party. <laughs> but yeah. like, it's like, we can do that. Obviously you should always throw parties for party's sake. But I think it feels really good right now to be able to have any kind of positive impact in the world. You know, for me, it was Trump calling Africa a shithole and, you know, being like, what am I going to do as a person? How do I respond to that? 
And one of the ways is let's raise money for kids in Africa to go to school who can't afford it. And, um, and part of the way I've done that is through partying. Yes. By the way, when you said the word karaoke, I was like, what? I want to go to, I'll go to any karaoke fundraiser party at any time. Also, just so you know, and I'm telling everyone in the podcasting audiences, I used to be a karaoke DJ. I was too. Really? Yes. I didn't know you were a KJ. Yes. You have, you have to say a lot of like, put your hands together or like, give it up for so-and-so. There's a lot of telling people to give it up. Okay, what were your songs? Did you banish any yes. songs? Okay, what was Did the you song banish you banished? songs? Hell yes. This wasn't even on my list. I can't even believe this. Okay, my songs were, I had a lot of them. It was like, Baby Got Back, <laughs> specifically as sung by that, white people. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was really, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. Like, just like some guy being like, uh, double a, uh, uh. Like, I just couldn't. Um, Killing Me Softly was often butchered at my place, and so I said no. Also, Under the Boardwalk, that was particular to the place that I KJ'd at, and I can't, some kind of like, like living on a prayer-esque oh. kind of. What about the meatloaf uh, duet? Oh, do you remember that yeah, one? Yeah, yeah, it yeah. was like, I would do, Lita Ford? Was it Lita Ford? I mean, no, there who was, was it? There was, I would, I do, would do anything for love, but I won't do that. That's like a seven minute song. Yeah, anything that's too long. I think people don't understand that some songs are too long. It becomes self-indulgent and it's not good for anyone else in the room. Cats in the Cradle. That was my oh, really? number one. That and American Pie. Oh, American Pie. They're like the worst. It's like Cats in the Cradle feels like it lasts for 24 hours. Like it really feels like the longest song in the world to me. I can't take it. So I just like crossed it out of the book. I had a list posted on the front of my podium. Like oh, a I, just, like, I was like not available. <laughs> not available. And as much as I sincerely love the B-52s, Love Shack, you know, sung by the drunk, like, office party, and that's just, like, a symbol that, like, the night has either jumped a shark or, like, just something's happened in the room once that occurs. Oh, also, the song Strokin'. Did you ever hear that song? It's to the tune of the electric slide, and it's gross. This guy's like, I be strokin'. I no. stroke it to the east. I stroke it to us. I stroke it to the woman that I love best. I be strokin'. And it's like a bad guy... Jerking off, I guess. And it's well, so you long. know, Shebop is also is about a woman jerking off, Which, and that was a popular one, and I I love that one. I would I mean, love to hear people sing that. Yeah, I'm trying to think of. Oh, I had a thing where, for the older listeners, you'll understand, <laughs> Family Ties TV show. Yeah, yeah. That song. What would you think yeah. I would do at this moment? Where like Alex P. Keaton started dance was dancing with Tracy Pollan, who later became his wife in real life. And, like, I don't know why, but that moment was, like, so beautiful when I was a teenager. <laughs> and so that was my secret sound song that if anybody ever picked that song, I had a prize waiting. Oh. Yeah, and someone finally did. What'd they get? I think they probably got a Bikini Kill album. <laughs> you're like, you're never going to believe what I have for you. A CD. Like, yeah, it was probably a CD. Here's your Pussy Whip CD. And they're like, who's what's bikini kill and like, who's what's pussy whip? Like, you're welcome, welcome. Do you have do you have any songs that were like your karaoke downfalls? Like songs where you're like, ooh, this was this is my regret. Like I tried for this song and it really was. I recently thought of like three that I tried and just failed spectacularly. At. Oh, I practice beforehand. I usually do. I don't even drink when I do karaoke because I want to stay on my game. Yeah, I never drink during karaoke. You can't drink during karaoke. Oh, right. It's like it's yeah. Well, two things will happen. One, I won't sing at my best. And B, I will choose too many songs. I'll regrettably go. I'll go over like the 
the prudent two or three songs and I'll go into like five songs. So it's like two o'clock in the morning. There's only one person left waiting with you for your last song. And then you have a shame spiral the next day. Uh, yeah. I mean, I half regret, half love my decision to do the clash. Should I stay or should I go now as, am I a good karaoke host now? Oh mm -hmm. yeah. The Mm -hmm. whole thing, I turned it into a song about if people enjoyed my karaoke ability or not. Yeah. Um, but I did the very last song I ever sung, and this was in Olympia right before I moved when Bikini Kill broke up, and I'd kind of had my fill of the town, and I love Olympia, and it gave me everything I am today, but it had turned on me mm-hmm. like a bad partner. It had just turned on me. And um, so I sang, uh, I will always love you, and that I flipped off the entire town and dropped the mic. Oh! <laughs> That's a good way to leave. Is it? I don't, I mean, I had the next day I was like, a couple of friends were like, the, it, like, you know, it was kind of a small town. People were like, she flipped out. And I was like, fuck you. <laughs> and I was like giving the middle finger to everybody. And your friends were like, but we still, they're like, I can't believe you flipped off the whole town. But I didn't flip off the whole town. I flipped off like the six people who were there and it was my friends and they knew I was kidding. I, I think it's a perfect breakup song. I feel like it's it kind is. of a classic. I think that's like an epic move. Yeah. It was like, we used to be, you're just not what I need anymore. Yeah. Like, I wish you the best, <laughs> but not for, but it's not for me. Yeah. I think that is wonderful. Kathleen, thank you for coming on the podcast. People can get the shirts at teesfortogo.com. T-E-E-S, four, the number four, T-O-G-O.com. And they can find all the t-shirts and they should order a trillion of them for the holidays. Oh, the Joan Jet ones are like gorgeous. They're, so sexy. Yeah. So sexy. And uh, listener JD Samson wanted to know if you chose yellow for her shirt because you knew that it was her favorite color. I did know JD likes yellow. I didn't remember that it was her favorite color, but the drawing just looked really good on yellow. And we didn't have a yellow shirt and I like to wear yellow. Mm-hmm. So it was actually a selfish maneuver. Well, that is the answer. Thanks for doing it. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thank you. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time. Yes, listeners, I should say the songs that I regret doing are um, Listen by Beyonce from Dreamgirls. <laughs> um, Listen by Beyonce from Dreamgirls, which I did as a duet with Katie Davidson. It was a little out of our range. Um, a Moment Like This by Kelly Clarkson. Again, this is why she won American Idol, because it's a very difficult song. And um, Somebody to Love by Queen, which is one of my favorite That's songs. Hard. It's so... Hard, and I just get a little ambitious. Somebody. <laughs> Somebody.